Let's pray together once again. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, breathe new life into our willing souls. Bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew our hearts and make us whole. Cause your word to come alive in us. Give us faith for what we cannot see. Give us passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in us. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. The epistle to the Ephesians chapter 3. In the Christian church, you invariably have people who are at various points in their walk with Christ. And in a church like ours, for example, you have some who are relatively young in the faith, relatively new Christians. Uh, you have some others who have been in the way maybe for 10 to 20 years. And perhaps still others who have been a child of God and walking with Christ uh, for 40 or 50 years. And in the Christian life, there are Certain things you come to appreciate perhaps within the first few months or years of being God's child. And then there are some things that you learn uh, after many years in the faith. And then there are still other things that maybe you get maybe in seed form when you're first converted. You apprehend to a small degree. And as you continue to walk with Christ and continue to be God's child, you come to appreciate more and more that truth in a fuller and deeper and richer way. Now I've said in previous Uh, sermons, that a Christian's introduction into the church as a new convert, as a member of the community of God's people, is not entirely unlike uh, a freshman orientation at a new college. And maybe we need to do something like that in the church, freshman Christian orientation in the body of Christ. And uh, those of you who have gone to college and you've been in a freshman orientation, you can remember what that's like you, you maybe gather with all the freshmen. You have maybe an upperclassman or some uh, faculty member who takes you around campus. And their job is to show you crucial information that you're going uh, to need to hang on to in order to succeed while you're at college. And so they take you perhaps by uh, the food court. And they say, this is where you're going to eat. And uh, this is really important that you hang on to this information because if you don't, you're going to go hungry here at college. Or they may say, this is, this is your dorm. Remember where this building is, where this room is, because if you don't, you're going to be homeless. And maybe they show you where your classes are. And this is really important, because if you don't go to class, uh, you're not going to be at college very long. It's utterly necessary and vital information at freshman orientation. Well, in a similar way, there are certain fundamental truths about the Christian life and about the Christian church that should be communicated loud and clear to every freshman in Christ, every new child of God as they're baptized and introduced into the church. Some of those truths we've been considering actually in the book of Ephesians. So for example, if we had freshman orientation for all the new Christians at Emmanuel Church, we might want to convey first of all that salvation is the result entirely of God's grace. You need to know that. That's vital information. If you're going to make it as a child of God, you must remember and appreciate that salvation from beginning to end is all the result of God's grace. As Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, lest any man should boast. We may want to communicate additionally in freshman orientation that God desires that all His people walk in holiness 
and obedience. You have to know this. If you're a new child of God, a new Christian, a new member of the church, one of God's purposes for you is that you walk in good works. So Ephesians 2, uh, 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. In fact, in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, Paul writes, Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. As part of God's purpose for his children, and so should form part of the curriculum at freshman orientation. We might also want to communicate that Christians have to understand that they're now viewed primarily as God's children. Uh, that their view of God is not principally as a judge, but as a father. And this is utterly vital and essential for every child of God. In fact, I've read some quotes and sermons past from J.I. Packer, who says something to the effect that, that uh, a Christian's grasp of the Christian faith can only be as strong or as good as his grasp of the doctrine of adoption. You want to understand Christianity? Understand the doctrine of adoption. And we have this also in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 5. We read that in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And then one other what I'm calling a freshman truth that we've introduced more recently as we've been in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, is that community in the Christian life is not optional. Mm. Community in the Christian life is not optional. One of the things Christ accomplished by his blood, through his flesh, through his work on the cross, was to purchase for himself a people. And not only that, we've seen in Ephesians 2 that one of the things Christ was doing on the cross was destroying the dividing wall of separation, the dividing wall of hostility that kept Jew and Gentile from being united in one body. And so, so through what Christ did on the cross, he brought this community together, formed this new humanity in Christ Jesus, such that it's not optional whether or not we're going to live in Christian community. It's one of the very things for which Christ died. You, Christian, must be in community because Christ has called you to be in community and through his blood he's formed a new community that you're meant to be a part of. And not only that, it's so necessary. Brother or sister, you need Christians in your life who love you, who pray for you, who are determined to keep you accountable and actually have a stake in you persevering to the end. Community in the Christian life is by no means optional. Well, these are what I'm calling uh, freshman truths. They're profound truths, and they're truths that we never uh, graduate from. Even if we make it to our sophomore year and our junior year and our senior year, we never move past these freshman truths. They're truths we come to appreciate more and more as we grow in Christ, and they're truths that ought to form part of the freshman orientation of Christians. But now there are some truths that maybe aren't as clear in your freshman year. This morning I want to talk about a truth that we maybe get in seed form when we're first converted. Maybe we understand it a little bit. But it's a truth that we increasingly come to understand perhaps as we get older in Christ. As we live out our walk with Christ in the church and in the community of God's people. We come to appreciate this truth more and more. Now here it is. The truth is this. As you grow in the faith and in your walk with Christ and in your life in the church, you gradually come to appreciate, and this is the truth, that the church is a supernatural entity. The church is a supernatural entity. Maybe when you first come to faith and you first join the church, you think, wow, this is a great community. Uh, so many Christian people like me who are trying to understand the Bible and trying to learn what it means to follow Christ. It's, 
You're a bunch of people, enthusiastic, well-meaning, gathering around a common interest. We all like the Lord Jesus, love the Lord Jesus, we love the Bible, and here we are gathering together to learn more about the Bible and about Christ. But I contend that as you navigate life in the church, it won't take long before you appreciate that the church is more than just a group of enthusiastic, well-meaning people who enjoy spending time together and uniting around a common interest. Perhaps as you enter your sophomore year and you grow in the faith, you come to appreciate this truth, that the church itself is a supernatural entity. And I would argue that the church is nothing if it is not a supernatural entity. Now here's what I mean by that. What do I mean when I say the church is a supernatural entity? Well, I mean at least a few things. First of all, the church is supernatural in its origins. The church is supernatural in its origins. During the ministry of the Lord Jesus, he anticipated the formation of the church. He gives the principles by which the church is to live. But it's really not until we get to the book of Acts that we sort of see day one of church history. Maybe you're familiar with Acts chapter 2. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but I'm just going to read the first few verses about uh, the supernatural origin of the church in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived... They, the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That sounds supernatural to me. Here is this band of disciples who, who some weeks and months prior uh, were, were failing and frail in their faith. Some of whom actually abandoned the Lord Jesus in his hour of crucifixion. Who were doubting and then later on were restored in the faith. And now here they are filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost for the origins of the church. And what happens in Acts 2? Peter stands up and he preaches to this great multitude. And we read in Acts chapter 2 verse 40... And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Sounds supernatural. The Holy Spirit came in power. He filled his people, and the church was born in the conversion of 3,000 souls in this very mighty and supernatural manifestation of the power of God and of the Spirit's filling So that's what I mean when I say the church is supernatural. Secondly, I mean that the church is supernatural in its formation. In its formation. And this is what we've been looking at most recently in our series in the book of Ephesians. In verses 11 through 22, Paul talks about the new humanity in Christ Jesus. And it's something that's formed of disparate groups who were formerly alienated from one another, divided from one another, hostile toward one another. And what has Jesus done? Through His blood... And in his flesh, he destroyed the dividing wall of separation such that these two groups, these Jews and Gentiles, who were formerly alienated and hostile toward one another, they're now united in one body. One new humanity in Christ Jesus. That's something that's altogether supernatural. It wasn't accomplished by renewed attempts at diplomacy between the two groups. It wasn't the result of a a renewed effort to play nicey-nice between Jew and Gentile. It was done by the supernatural power of God in reconciling Jew and Gentile first to God and then to one another and uniting them in one body, forming them into one body, such that now the Gentiles, the nations are brought in. They're members of the same household of God. They're heirs together with one another. They're fellow citizens with the saints. 
And we read at the very end of Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 20 through 22 that they're actually now said to form a temple in some sense. That is, Jew and Gentile come together, these disparate groups forming one new humanity in Christ. They're forming a temple that God inhabits by His Holy Spirit. All together supernatural in its formation. But thirdly, the church is supernatural in its function and in its ministry. Church is the embassy of King Jesus. The church is called to preach the message of good news to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And as it does, dead sinners are raised to life. And those who walked in darkness come to see the marvelous light of Christ. And through the church's proclamation of the gospel, lives are being supernaturally transformed. Not only that, we saw last week, as we considered Ephesians 3 verses 2 through 13, that Paul had been given, the Apostle Paul had been given a special ministry to bring light, to bring to light the mystery of God's redemptive purposes in bringing the church together and making one new humanity from Jews and Gentiles, formerly hostile, but now united through the peace that only Christ provides. And the reason we're given for why Paul was given this ministry of, of ministering this mystery and bringing to light these things that were formerly hidden to generations in the past, but now revealed to God's people that the Gentiles are included in God's redemptive plan, Jew and Gentile, to form one new humanity in Christ. The reason Paul was given that mystery and that ministry is found in verse 10 of chapter 3, which reads as follows, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We opened up this verse. We said that through the church, apparently there is to be this supernatural, cosmic display of the manifold wisdom of God as revealed in the gospel. And this manifestation of the the many-sided wisdom of God is actually said to be made to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And we saw last time that these rulers and authorities are literally angels and demons and spiritual forces of darkness and Satan himself. So not only is the church to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, they're to be this supernatural display of the wisdom of God to the spiritual powers. I mean, how, how profound and glorious a thought. Satan and demons and forces of darkness and angels and saints are looking upon the church. And it's through the church that this supernatural cosmic display of the wisdom of God informing a new humanity in Christ Jesus is being displayed to the spiritual powers, to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Glorious realities to which the church has been called. The church is, if anything, a supernatural entity, supernatural in its origins, supernatural in its formation supernatural in its function and ministry. Well, now this morning, I want us to appreciate that the church, in all of its supernatural characteristics, is supernaturally sustained. The church, and all the supernatural things the church is called to be and do, if it's going to be and do those supernatural characteristics, it must be supernaturally sustained. Let me ask you, how is it that the preaching of the church goes forward in power. I mean like present tense, today, the preaching of the church is going forward in power. How is that? How is it that the gospel and the church are planted in thousands of nations and cultures all over the world? How is it that the church is being built and the gates of hell are not prevailing against it? How is it 
that the Christian movement has ably met every challenge it has encountered and not only survived but thrived in the face of opposition and persecution and oppression. How is it that the church has not been extinguished at any time over the last 2,000 years but has only gone from strength to strength? How is that possible? It's because the church is supernaturally sustained. It's a supernatural entity sustained supernaturally. It has not been the result of good strategy. It has not been the result of social engineering. It has not been uh, the result of political conquest. It is because the church is supernaturally sustained by God himself. For our time today, I want to ask a more focused question for our gathering here this morning. Why is it that so many churches made up of people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different ages, different economic abilities. How is it that so many churches like that are sustained in their oneness and in their love and in their unity and their mission, not only for a short time, but for generations? How is that possible? Uh, Just recently, I was in London at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Um, you may know that church, have heard of that church, if you're familiar with the life and ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, probably the greatest preacher that ever lived, as far as we know. What a lot of people don't know is that Charles Spurgeon did not uh, found that church. He did not plant that church. That church had been in existence long before Charles Spurgeon was ever there. In fact, it was around at least 250 years prior to the ministry of Charles Spurgeon. And there were a number of, of, of very famous theologians and pastors who led that church. I don't know if you know the name Benjamin Keach. He was actually an original signatory of the 1689 Confession of Faith. He was pastor of that church. Uh, You maybe heard of John Gill, a famous Baptist theologian, wrote one of the most well-known bodies of divinity, bodies of systematic theology uh, in church history. Uh, Maybe you've heard of the ministry of John Rippon. He was also the pastor there for many years, wrote many hymns, had a very fruitful ministry in that church. And various other pastors, and in time, I believe in 1854, Charles Spurgeon showed up and ministered there for 37 years. When he retired from the ministry there, there were over 5,000 members in that church in the heart of London, just kind of an East London, densely populated area, over 5,000 members. After the ministry of Spurgeon, that church dwindled to some degree over the years to the point of the 1960s, where it was a small band about the size of this church. It was in that time a young Buck, named Peter Masters, came to the church in 1970. He's been there for 47 years. He's probably preached this morning, uh, about five hours ago. Some of you are saying they really did meet at 6 o'clock in the morning. No, there's a time difference. (laughs) But they met this morning. And again, as he's done for 47 years, Peter Masters stood up and preached. If you were in that assembly this morning, you would see no less than 1,000 people, standing room only. You would see no less than 50 nations of the world represented in that assembly. You would see hosts of people with headphones in their ears because they translate into five or six languages in their morning worship. And you would see Dr. Masters, who I assure you is in every way unimpressive. He is in every way ordinary. This man is a fairly conventional, older British gentleman. He's up there with his unimpressive suit, his unimpressive tie. And if you watch his sermons, you wouldn't think there's anything in the way of popular rhetoric in this man. And yet a thousand people from various tribes, tongues, and peoples literally have gathered to sit under the word of God. 
And there's no social explanation for why they're doing so. How has that church been sustained for now hundreds of years and generation after generation and its mission and its ministry? I contend that it's supernatural. God has supernaturally worked in that body to make it to be and do all that it's called to be and do supernaturally. If something like a multi-generational ministry is going to exist in this place, of people made up of various backgrounds and cultures, people uh, with different interests, different hobbies, and yet one in Christ, supernaturally formed as the church, if that's going to exist in this place for several generations, how will it exist? I'm so hopeful. I would be delighted if the Lord Jesus would return within the year. I'm praying for that. I'm hoping for that. He could come. Kids, he could come. Jesus could come back before Christmas. Jesus could come back before Thanksgiving. Jesus could come back before Monday morning. Are you ready? Are you ready for the return of the Lord Jesus? Why? Well, I, I surely hope he comes within this year. We're told to, to pray for that and to hope for that. But suppose he does not. Suppose that he tarries for another 500 years. Will Emmanuel Church be there? I sure hope so. Because I saw to it that uh, uh, the, the, the document, the church covenant that we printed out, that we framed and signed, I was very careful that it was printed off on premium cardstock paper. Because I want it to be there 500 years from now. I don't want that sheet of paper to rip or to, to get crimpled up in any way. I want it to be there for some gathering of Emmanuel Church 500 years from now. If we're going to be sustained, if we're going to be all that the church must be and do all that the church must do, we're going to need to be supernaturally sustained. And so now, I bring you to Ephesians chapter 3. Now, some of you I can see it on your faces are very nervous that I'm only just now getting to my outline, getting to the message. Listen, I, I never preach over an hour. I rarely preach more than 50 minutes. Okay, so we're going to be okay. We're going to get to the end. All right. Please look at Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 1, Paul, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord. And then he quickly breaks his thought there. He goes off into this digression. And the digression in verses 2 through 13 is what we considered last week. But now we want to come back to this prayer that Paul began in verse 1. But in order to understand the prayer in its context, we need to appreciate what has gone before. Now it's my contention that when Paul starts the prayer with the words, for this reason, he's referring to everything that he had just previously said in the book of Ephesians, specifically chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. That's what's in Paul's mind. That's what moves him to prayer. And that's why he says, for this reason, and starts the prayer. But then he says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, and he realizes perhaps there are some in his audience who, who aren't fully acquainted with the ministry, the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so in verses 2 to 13, he explains his ministry, the unique charge that God had given him to minister this mystery to the nations and to the church. And then he picks it back up in verse... 14, again with the words, for this reason. Which means, I think, that when he picks back up the prayer in verse 14, he's not referring to the material that he just gave in verses 2 through 13. I think the material in verses 2 through 13 enriches Paul's prayer. But he's picking up that prayer he began in verse 1, and the for this reason is referring to those supernatural realities with respect to the church that are conveyed in verses 11 through 22. So here's what I want to do. I want to read the end of Ephesians 2. We'll just start in verses 19 through 22. And we'll read straight into chapter 3 and verse 14. Okay? So let's begin Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, and then we'll jump to 3.14. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And now look at chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This morning, in the time remaining, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. We're actually going to leave the, the benediction or the doxology in verses 20 through 21 for, for next week. So we'll just look at verses 14 through 19, the heart of this prayer that Paul opens up. I have two main headings for this morning. First of all, we want to consider the introduction to the prayer. And then secondly, we want to consider the two petitions, the two main petitions in the prayer. And we'll consider them one after the other. The introduction to the prayer... And then the two petitions to the prayer. And then next week, we're going to look at the benediction or the doxology at the conclusion of the prayer. First of all, notice the introduction to the prayer, which is recorded in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. First of all, what's the reason? Why is it that Paul bows before the Father? What is he talking about when he says, for this reason, what does Paul have in his mind? I contend that he has in mind all of the book of Ephesians leading up to these verses, but primarily the supernatural realities he's called the church to in verses 11 through 22. We saw in those verses that the Gentiles who were strangers to the commonwealth of Israel, who were strangers to the promises of God, who without hope and without God in the world, they have now been included in the redemptive purposes of God. They have had peace preached to them, and they have been brought near by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Apparently what Jesus was doing on the cross was that by His blood, He was, he was destroying this wall, this wall of division that divided Jew from Gentile. So that these groups that were formerly alienated from one another, who were hostile toward one another, who were divided from one another, who would have probably hated one another, they're now brought together in supernatural unity in the church. They're brought together. They're one new man in Christ Jesus, and they're to be in the same assembly together. You could imagine uh, a very pious, conservative, older Jewish man. We read in the book of Acts that probably the first converts in the Ephesian context, chapter 18 through 20, records the, the founding of the Ephesian church. We read in the book of Acts that probably the first converts were Jews. Uh, they were, uh, in some sense, maybe disciples of John the Baptist. They had heard the preaching of Apollos. Uh, Paul had preached in the synagogue and apparently had won some disciples in the synagogue. These, these figures, these people who were formerly these pious Jews who did not believe in the Messiah, did not believe in Jesus Christ, and through Paul's preaching, they're converted. And they're sort of the beginning members of the church in Ephesus. But then as we go on to read in chapter 19, there's this profound movement of the Spirit of God, and the Word of the Lord prevails in power among the Gentiles. And it's interesting, if you go back and read about the various individuals who are converted and made part of the church, there are apparently some who were involved in the worship of uh, Artemis, 
Apparently, those who were caught up in idolatrous practices, because we read that apparently the idol-making industry of the region of Ephesus was threatened by the work of the church. So people are getting rid of their idols, these people who formerly were worshiping false gods. We read apparently there were those that were caught up in the occult, caught up in black magic and dark arts, because we read that as a result of the preaching of Paul and the word prevailing, they burned their magic books. And so you have maybe an older, conservative, pious Jewish man who his whole life tried to live according to the Torah, And he hears the preaching of Paul. He comes to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He believes in the Lord Jesus and becomes Christ's disciple. He joins the church. Then you have one of the temple prostitutes. Young girl, very loose, libertarian. She's down at the temple of Artemis. She hears the preaching of Paul in the hall of Tyrannus. Caught up perhaps in idolatrous practices, uh, sexually immoral practices. Maybe caught up in black magic. And she's converted through the preaching of Paul. And they're sitting on the front row in the church service at the First Baptist Church of Ephesus. How on earth is the gap between the experience of these two people ever to be bridged? I think that Paul recognizes that the supernatural realities to which this church has been called, that that these two cultures, these two disparate groups are going to merge in some way and be members of one new community. All that that's going to involve, all that's going to require of them, he recognizes that it's a supernatural thing. That is so. How is this going to work itself out? This is going to take something extraordinary. It's going to take something supernatural. He says, for this reason. I bow my knees to the Father. For this reason. Because, because the church is so glorious and so wonderful and all that it's called to be, and yet it's hard. It requires much. It's going to require supernatural unity and love and working all these things out in terms of what the church is to be and what the church is to do. He says, for this reason. And what does he do? For this reason, I bow my knees the Father. He doesn't say, for this reason, Church of Ephesus, you're going to need really highly qualified financial and administrative personnel. You're going to make this work out. For this reason, you're going to need the best band in town to do your corporate worship. For this reason, uh, you're, you're really going to need to uh, send out a survey into Ephesus and find out what the young people are interested in. No, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees. Mm. Because the church of God is not sustained through popular business techniques and tactics. It's not sustained through, through marketing strategies. It's sustained through the supernatural working of God. And Paul recognizes this and he says, I've got to bow my knees to the mm-hmm. Father. I need to pray. Mm-hmm. God has to come. God has to do a work. God has to come by His Spirit and fill His people to make possible these things that otherwise would be utterly impossible, utterly unthinkable. If that pious, conservative Jewish man is going to somehow enter into the burdens of this young, uh, 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 formerly uh, black magic practicing, uh, idol worshiping, uh, former prostitute who's now been converted. If they're going to live in fellowship together, if they're going to bear one of those burdens, if they're going to be everything that the church is called to be and called to do, God has to come and God has to do something to make the church to be what it ought to be. That's the introduction to the prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father and I don't have time to really get into the details of verse 15, but I think he's just drawing attention to God's creative power. God's uh, the one who supernaturally brought the world into existence, and he's the one who is over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And that's what Paul is drawing attention to. But now let's look at the two petitions in the prayer. Let's look at the first petition, and then we'll look at the second petition, and then consider some applications. The first petition I understand to be recorded for us in verses 16 through 17. 
Paul's prayer is this. He bows his knees to the Father. Why? Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power of his spirit, or excuse me, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What is this first petition? What is Paul asking for? To summarize it, I believe that Paul is asking that God would give strength and power through the Spirit's indwelling. That's the first petition. That God would come and that he would give strength and power and help and enablement through the work of the Holy Spirit. If I could paraphrase the prayer, I would say this. Paul says, My dear God and Father, in light of the supernatural realities to which you have called your church, and in light of the immense challenges that face this local body here in Ephesus, Please, Father, out of your own abundant supply, give to the members of the church at Ephesus strength and power through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in order that they may be and do all that you have called them to be and do. Notice, firstly, the resources that are available to the believer. What are the resources available to the believer? They're recorded for us in verse 16 that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, according to the riches of his glory. It's interesting, there are two prayers in the book of Ephesians. One is recorded at the conclusion of Ephesians 1. The other is recorded at the conclusion of Ephesians 3. And there are very similar petitions that are taken up in both prayers, though I think with uh, slightly different ideas in view. So flip back to Ephesians chapter 1, if you would. I want to draw your attention to what Paul prays for there. Just look with me at verses 17 through 19. After enumerating the spiritual blessings that God's people are given in Christ Jesus, verse 17, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of Him. Prayer for the Holy Spirit. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have, He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Now look at verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? In the prayer in Ephesians 1, the resources available to the believer are understood to be the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Now, back in Ephesians 3, here in our text, the resources available to us are from the riches of God's glory. I think we'll be all right. God is working in his people through his great might, according to his great power. How are God's people going to be strengthened? What resources is God going to draw from? Well, it's according to the riches of his glory. There's this store, this inexhaustible, vast storehouse of resources available to the believer. And I just think in the Ephesians' mind, they're supposed to enlarge their understanding of all that God can do. He acts according to the riches of his glory which are inexhaustible, which are immeasurable, such that we'll see next week. He says, God's able to do far abundantly above all that you ask or think. His resources are inexhaustible. And he strengthens his people according to the riches of his own grace. Now look, secondly, in this first petition, let's ask, what does Paul pray for specifically? He prays that they would be strengthened with power according to the Spirit working in their inner being, according to Christ dwelling in their hearts by faith. What's the idea here? What is Paul praying for when he prays for the strengthening with power? I think it's the idea of enablement. It's the idea of help. It's the idea of God supplying them with all that they need, with enablement, with power, with strength. Paul recognizes what they've been called to is seemingly impossible. Paul, think about it, is in a jail cell in Rome, we believe, 
And he's familiar with the divisions and factions and splits that have occurred in numbers of churches, perhaps some that he even had a hand in planting. And he's thinking of this body of believers in Ephesus. He's wondering how on earth, these Jews and Gentiles who had gathered together, how on earth are they going to be and do everything that the church is called to be and do? How are they going to be this supernatural body that is no longer Jew and Gentile, but now one new man in Christ, dwelling in supernatural unity, dwelling as fellow citizens of the same kingdom, forming this body that the Spirit... And how, how is that going to happen? Can they really defeat their alienation? Can they really overcome the hostility? Will they really be a united body, or will natural divisions and relational tensions undo the work of Christ? And how, how are they going to do this? And so he prays that God would give them power, that God would give them strength, that God would give them enablement to be what the church is called to be, that God would fill them with his spirit, and that they would be enabled to do the work that the church is called to do. The church is only going to endure if it is supernaturally sustained. God needs to come supernaturally and sustain his church. But now thirdly in this first petition, notice the means by which this power comes. How does it come to them? The answer is it's through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Look again at Ephesians 3, verse 16. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now I believe, I understand, the two phrases, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, and so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, Parallel infinitives, I believe they're parallel thoughts. To speak of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer, in the believer's inner being, is to speak of the indwelling of Christ. The Spirit inhabits the heart of every Christian, and at the same time, it is true that Christ is present with every Christian. Well, how is that possible? Which one is it? Is the Spirit in the believer? Is Christ in the believer? It's possible because... The way in which Christ is present with His people is by and through His Holy Spirit. How is it that Christ is present in your life and in your heart? We read that it's through the Holy Spirit who comes and indwells the heart of the believer. And this truth comes to us with penetrating profound power in the upper room discourse. The Gospel of John, chapter 14 and also in chapter 16, we're given more information about the Holy Spirit in those chapters than anywhere else in the Bible. Now, I won't have you turn there, but I want to read just a few verses from John chapter 14. You know, I said some weeks ago, I'm again working with J.I. Packer, this time his book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit. His thesis in that book, he asked the question, what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? What is the role of the Holy Spirit? What is it that the Holy Spirit does? What's his primary ministry? Packer argues that the ministry of the Holy Spirit, primarily, is to mediate the presence of Christ to his people. To manifest Christ to his people. Sometimes you'll see these books published about the Holy Spirit, that He's the forgotten God or the forgotten member of the Trinity. I get what's going on there, but I really don't like those titles because I don't think the Holy Spirit is sitting over here wondering why no one gives Him attention. The Holy Spirit is pointing to Jesus. He's saying, if you're looking at Him, if you're seeing Him, if the risen Christ is held before your eyes as beautiful and wonderful, then I don't have any problem with that. The Holy Spirit's work is to bring to us the presence of Christ, such that if you feel you've met with Christ today in the singing, that was the Holy Spirit's work, bringing the presence of Christ to you. If you're home and you're praying and you're reading the Scriptures and you, you feel, I just, I just met with the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit came. 
Holy Spirit worked and mediated the presence of Christ to you. And this comes to us in profound, powerful ways in John chapter 14. Verse 15, John writes this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Hang on to that. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And what will happen? That I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. What's John saying? If you love me, you keep my commandments. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to indwell you. He'll be with you. He'll be in you. And then just a few verses later in verse 23, the Lord Jesus says this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Same introduction. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. What's he going to do? And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. You love me, keep my commandments. The Holy Spirit's going to, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. If you love me and keep my commandments, my Father and I are going to come make our home with him. How's he doing that? Through the Holy Spirit. Through, how is it that the Lord Jesus makes a home in the heart of the believer? It's through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why, to some degree, there are linguistic factors to consider. But that's why back in our text in Ephesians 3, I understand when Paul refers to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and he's referring to Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith, he's referring to one in the same reality. That the Holy Spirit comes in power and dwells the believer. And through the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ comes to the child of God. So what's the first petition? I believe it's a prayer for divine enablement. Paul is praying this in our text. He says, if you're going to be that supernatural entity, if you're going to be and do all that Christ has called you to be and do, you will need something supernatural. You will need power and strengthening and enablement and help to be given you from God. And you will need to know the help of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of Christ who dwells in your hearts by faith. First prayer. First petition is a prayer for enablement. And let me just say, this truth that the church is supernaturally sustained, that the church is able to be and do all that it's called to be and do only through what God does by supplying power to His church supernaturally through His Holy Spirit and through Christ. It's precisely this truth in the Scriptures why we've committed at Emmanuel Church not to cater to people. This is why when the church was planted, we did not run, run off demographic reports for what Millennials want in a church. It's, it's why we have not consulted marketing textbooks to build the church. So we believe that the church is going to be built. It can only be built through the supernatural power of God. If the church is going to be what it's called to be, this supernatural entity, this temple that God is building, this great, this great superstructure where disparate groups and people from different backgrounds and different cultures come together and be what they're called to be, God has to come in the spirit and power. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 2. He does not want to win people with popular rhetoric. He's not going to win people with, with uh, kitschy little videos and with mastering all social media platforms. How is God going to do a work? Paul says he wants God to give the manifestation of the Spirit and power. He wants to see something supernatural done in the body of Christ. And if the church is going to be built, if it's really going to be built, and the church... It's not just built through the accumulation of a large population of people who gather together. If the church is really going to be built and to be what it's called to be and to do what it's called to do, God needs to come by His Spirit. He needs to fill His people. He needs to supply supernatural power so that they could be the supernatural entity that they're called to be. Remember this. What you win people with is what you win them to. What you win people with what you win them to. 
And are we going to win people in Winston-Salem with fads? Are we going to win them with ripped jeans and rock music? Are we going to win them with cool programs and a really great Instagram account? Or, or do we want to see in this place and in this community the demonstration of the spirit and power that no charismatic figure can manufacture? That no man can generate? That no enthusiastic, well-meaning body of people can bring into existence? Are we going to call upon God to bring power by the indwelling of His Holy Spirit in the hearts of His people, filling His body with power and with enablement and with strength and with the Holy Spirit? May God make it so. Look with me now a little more briefly at the second petition. And we'll close with considering this petition here. I'll have to move a little quicker. I may have to pass over some details The second petition we read on in verse 17, the latter part of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is the second petition? If I had to summarize, I'd say it's this, that God's people would know the love of Christ. God wants his people to know the love of Christ. The second petition, characteristic of Paul, is a prayer for knowledge. It's a prayer for comprehension, that they would have the ability to comprehend the dimensions of the love of Christ. What is it there to comprehend? We read it's the breadth and length and height and depth, if you're reading from the ESV, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. First of all, they're to comprehend these dimensions. The breadth length, the height, depth. But there's actually a problem in the text, and and it's reflected accurately in the ESV. You would see this in the Greek text. We're not told to what these dimensions correspond. The breadth, the length, the depth, and height of what? Is it the power of God? Is it the scope of the church? Is it the the, the scope of God's redemptive plans? Is it the number of people who are going to be incorporated into the body? Is it the love of Christ? What is it? Well, the traditional interpretation is that these dimensions are a measurement of Christ's love. They're a measurement of the love of Christ, because then he goes on to say, and and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. I'm just going to pass over a great deal of debate between the commentators, and I'm just going to say that I opt for the traditional interpretation, that these dimensions are a reference to the love of Christ. And I believe they're a reference to the love of Christ, because Paul wants to engender and to promote and to stimulate the Ephesian mind to think of how vast God's love is in Christ, how, how deep it is, how broad it is, how wide it is, how long it is. It comprehends not only a small ethnic group in Palestine, but people from all nations of the world. God's love is immeasurably vast, so much more vast than they could comprehend. Paul is praying that his readers would comprehend just how great God's love is. It has secured for redeemed sinners every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It has raised dead men and women to life in Christ. It has united formerly disparate, hostile, divided groups into one new humanity where they dwell with supernatural peace from Christ as a supernatural entity in supernatural unity. It has brought those who were formerly without hope and without God in the world near by the blood of Christ. So how deep the Father's love for us how vast beyond all measure. It's, it's incomprehensible. Think of these dimensions. We can't even comprehend them. How deep the Father's love. How deep the love of Christ. It's, it's like as, 
As soon as I feel I've got a grasp on it, it eludes my grasp and, and grows into deeper and richer and fuller dimensions. You know that old song, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry? Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. The depth, the breadth, the vastness of God's love. I think that's what Paul is referring to in our text. I also find Paul's language at this point slightly hilarious. Verse 19, he says, we're to to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know what can't be known. To know the love of Christ that's beyond us, that surpasses all knowledge. It's like, it's like, help me, Paul. I'm trying, you know. To know what can't be known. To grow in your knowledge, to comprehend in deeper and fuller and richer ways the love of God in Christ, which, which can't, it surpasses all knowledge. And yet Paul prays that they would come in deeper ways, fuller ways, richer ways to comprehend the love of God in Christ. That sounds supernatural to me. To know what can't be known. To plumb the depths that can't be plumbed. So what's the petition here? The second petition. Paul's prayer, according to verse 19, is that they would know the love of Christ. It's that they would comprehend it. That they would come in fuller ways to appreciate it, to understand it. But don't miss the connection here. Paul has prayed that Ephesians would be granted supernatural power in order to be what they must be as this supernatural entity, the church. Now in context. Why is it so important that the Ephesians comprehend the love of Christ? Why does he say, I want you to know the love of Christ? Why does he go there? He's already asked that they be filled with power through the Holy Spirit. He wants them to know the love of Christ. Well, they themselves are to be rooted and grounded in love. And they need to appreciate God's love for them in Christ so that they can love one another. How's this going to work out? How's the conservative old Jewish gentleman and, and, and the former prostitute, how are they going to love each other? There's no points of connection in their experience. I guarantee you they didn't have the same hobbies and interests. How are they going to love each other? How are Jews and Gentiles going to come together in one body and be what they're called to be and do what they're called to do and dwell in supernatural unity and love and harmony? They need to comprehend the love of Christ because they themselves will be rooted and grounded in love and they need to be able to love one another. And how do you grow in your love? you want to be a more loving person? How do you do that? Well, the, the sacred math, the formulas in our text, you have to comprehend You have to understand the love of Christ better. Paul prays this, that they would know the love of Christ. Then a few verses later, Ephesians 4 and verse 3, he says, you need to bear one another's burdens in love. He says, Ephesians 4 verse uh, 15, you need to speak the truth in love. He says in 4.16 that they're they're going to be, the whole church will be formed together with all these disparate parts, with various gifts and various members. They're going to build themselves up in love. The church is built up in love. Ephesians 5 and verse 2, he tells the Ephesians to walk in love. Christ has loved you. Giving yourself up for you. You want to walk in love? Who doesn't want to be a more loving person? Lord, I want love for my spouse. I want love for my kids. I want love for the guy in the cubicle next to me. I want love for the lost. I want love for the church. How am I going to be a more loving person? You want to walk in love? You need to walk in love just as Christ himself loved you. Gave himself for you. Ephesians 5.18 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How am I going to love my wife? How am I going to do it? She's so unreasonable. How am I going to love my wife? It's Christ loved his church. Comprehend Christ's love. Get a grasp of Christ's love. And it's through understanding Christ's love that we can become more loving people. You want to be a more loving person. You don't need to just try harder and do better. 
You don't need to sign up for yoga classes to put your mind at ease. That'll make you a more loving person. Or listen to a John Mayer record or drink more chai tea or something. You don't need to try harder or do better. You need to know Christ better. You need to get your nose in the text of the Bible. You need to see every way in which Christ has loved his people. You need to sniff out every way Christ has loved his people and further comprehend and understand what Christ has done for you. And that is how you'll become a more loving person. There's a math here. Those who know Christ love well, love well. Those who don't, don't love well. You see someone in the church who loves well. They're engaged affectionately for the good of others. They're serving others. They're pouring into others. How, how does that happen? If you see someone like that in the church, you can know this. They must know the love of Christ well. They must know Him intimately. If this person is a loving person, it's because they must have sat at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they've been given to comprehend something of the love of God in Christ. It's like I, I have a friends back in Mebane where we came from, uh, Andy and Courtney, some of our best friends. And we sometimes get to go to family functions. And Courtney, at the really good family function, she makes uh, barbecue. She makes Boston butt. As good as it gets. You go there, and she has had this thing marinating for 24 hours. And, and you can smell it as soon as you walk in the door. It hits you in the face like a wave. And you put that first morsel in your mouth. And you taste that tender meat and all those juices. And you realize there are hours of unseen preparation that have gone into this bite. I could take, this thing has been marinating. This thing has had some love and some care and has been prepared for this moment for me to enjoy this morsel. It's kind of like that when you experience in profound ways the love of God's people in the church. Someone is loving you well. such a loving person. There are hours of unseen seasons in God's word. Hours in prayer. Hours of seeking by God's help to comprehend the love of Christ. And by the same token, you see someone in the church who's cold, someone who's indifferent to the concerns of his brothers and sisters, someone who is not affectionately engaged for the good of the people of God, and you could conclude that person doesn't know much of the love of Christ. You want to be a more loving person? Oh, try to comprehend with God's help. Go help us to know the love of Christ. Paul is praying that for the Ephesians. The requirements, the demands, the challenges facing the Ephesian church are so great. They need to comprehend the love of Christ so that they can love one another. In conclusion, I have three applications. Our time is just about gone. I'm just going to state them. But first of all, we must commit to pray for supernatural enabling from God. To be and do all that Christ calls the church to be and do. We will not be the loving body we ought to be unless Christ comes and fills us with His Spirit. We will not walk in unity if we don't have divine enabling. We will not persevere in our mission if God doesn't strengthen us with power. And so members of Emmanuel Church, we need to pray that God would fill us with His Spirit. He supplies supernatural power to be what God has called us to be. Secondly, if we're going to be loving people, if we're going to dwell in intentional, loving relationships, we're going to dwell in harmony with one another, we must pray that God will help us to comprehend the love of Christ better. It's not going to be a matter of just trying harder. It's going to be knowing Christ better that loving people are produced. Finally, I want to say something to unbelievers here in this place. You have no idea how vast the love of God is. You have no idea the height and breadth width and depth of the love of God. You have no idea how vast it is. It is so vast that it could encompass you. 
despite your background, despite your sin, if you believe on the Lord Jesus in faith and repentance, the love of God will embrace you. You'll know the love of God in Christ. It surpasses all knowledge. And it encompasses far more than a small group of people in the Middle East. It's been encompassing people all over the world. And it will encompass you. You can know the love of God in Jesus Christ. Believe on Him in repentance and faith. And this love that surpasses all knowledge, you'll be granted insight to comprehend Him. To understand its dimensions. To understand how great the love of God in Christ is. He is ready to shower that love on you. So I charge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to come to Christ in repentance and faith. To know the love of God that surpasses all knowledge. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you that your love is so vast, so great, so deep, so wide, so broad. Who can understand it? Well, we pray that you would help us in increasing ways to know it, to comprehend it, so that we can be the loving people we're called to be. Pray that you would help us to plumb the depths of that love that, that can't be Exhausted that love that surpasses all knowledge. Grant us to comprehend it. And Lord, we pray that also you would give us divine enabling, supernatural enabling to be all that you've called your church to be. We recognize to be this, this body of people from various cultures and backgrounds, so different from one another, united in one body. We can't manufacture that. We can't produce that. We're helpless to maintain that, to sustain that. We depend on you doing something supernatural by your spirit. We depend on you coming in power. And so we pray, oh God, that you would, that your Holy Spirit would fill our hearts and that we would be the people that we ought to be by the supernatural working of God who supplies strength and enablement for his people and allows them to comprehend the love of Christ so that they in turn can love others. Lord, we pray for anyone who is far off and outside the love of Christ, that that love this morning would encompass them as they come to Christ in repentance and faith. Do this by your Spirit, we beg you, Father. In Christ's name, amen.